The date is August 20th, 1982, and a band has been in the recording studio working on an album for the last few months. And they're on the last day, and they need one last song to finish the album off. They've worked through the night, and it's 6 a.m., and they have to be out by 8 a.m. for the next band to come in. One of the band members says, let's do a psalm, and pulls out his Bible and starts to flip through the psalms. He comes to Psalm 40 and reads these words, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. You set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see and hear. One of the band members says, let's do it. And within 40 minutes, they had mixed the song together. They had finished it, walked out, and the next band walked in. The band that made this song famous is the well-known rock band U2. And the song, 40. How many people know it? How many people know the album? War, right? I've been listening to the album for the last few weeks as I've been driving back and forth from work. And when Trev said I could preach, I thought, I'm going to do Psalm 40 as a U2 fan. And I even listened to the song this morning as I started my car and drove here. So we're taking a look at different psalms this summer, trying to gain a wide variety of them from the first book only. And we need to remember that these are lyrics of ancient songs sung by ancient worshipers of God. Songs have a way of sticking in our head when we put them to music. When I was teaching, in, teaching English in China, I was told to use lots of songs to the three-year-olds that I was teaching so they could learn English as fast as possible. And I see my two-and-a-half-year-old learning so much from the songs that he sings. I'm getting sick of baby animals every day in the car, but he's learning words that helps him speak to us. And this psalm that we're looking at this morning is a lament. What is a lament? A lament is expressed both by a community and as an individual. And these types of laments are prayers or cries to God on an occasion of troublesome situations. And they bring us up with them, and they bring us down, and then up again, and then down again. And they are very emotional. Probably be emo music if we were to put a music type to it right now. So this morning, we're going to go to Psalm 40. So if you need a Bible, you can put your hand up. And one of the greeters will give you a Bible, and you can flip to Psalm 40. Psalms is about the middle of your Bible, and the chapter 40 is near the end of the first book that we're going to look at. And as we journey into Psalm 40, we're going to stop and look at three things this morning. We're going to look at what God does, who God is, and how this psalm shows us Jesus. So the first one, what God does. This verse picks up where Pastor Trev left off a few weeks ago when he preached on Psalm 39. So we're in the lament. We need to remember that it is emotional. And we're going to go up and we're going to go down with the psalmist. And there's going to be tons of imagery. The psalms are full of imagery. And they're poetry. And we're going to see David build on ideas. And he's all over the place. And I've tried to group them in different sections so we can better understand this. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord in verse 1. In the Hebrew, this would read, waiting, I waited. And the repeating of verbs adds emphasis. And it shows everything that happens after verse 1 only happens because he waited. Waiting. This is one of the hardest things for us to do in our culture, right? 
to wait, wait patiently when everything around us tells us to get what we want, when we want it, and we live in a culture that is driven by instant gratification. But this is how the psalm starts. When we wait on God, it is easier for us to see Him working in our lives. We can slow down and we can push away the noise and truly hear God speak. In my personal life, when I've slowed down and waited on God, it has become more clear to me that He is active in my life and He is involved. I've seen Him answer prayers and I've seen Him change situations right in front of my face. And the only way I know that is because I've waited on Him. So some of us this week, we need to slow down and wait on God. We've heard in this series on the Psalms that David is looking for God to show up and act. And this is what God does. We read that God heard David's cry. God hears. In verse 1, it says, He inclined to me and heard my cry. God shows favor to David and hears his cry. In his waiting, David cries out to God. We have a God who hears us when we cry. This shows us that he is present in our world. And he is even close enough to hear us when we cry. This shows us that we have a God who is truly interested and truly cares about us. In my life, there have been times where I've cried out to God. And I know he's heard me because he's answered what I've cried out for. I moved to a new city to take my dream job. Not knowing anyone in the city, I had to make friends. And within a year of being at this dream job in this new city, everything was taken away. The job was gone, and I didn't know what to do. A few months after processing it all and figuring out what I was going to do, I had a moment where I cried out to God. I wanted to know where he was and why he hadn't done anything. I wanted him to explain himself to why this happened. I just wanted to know what was going to happen and why it happened. This is something that we all long for, that God would hear us when we cry out to him. The psalmist tells us that indeed he does hear us. And some of us, we just need to cry out to God this week. After David cries out to God, God lifts him. In verse 2 we read, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. After David cries out, God lifts him up. The psalmist paints a picture of where he sees himself. In a pit, but it's more than a pit. It's a bog. I don't know if you've experienced a bog before. They're not the funnest thing in the world. I've experienced a bog when I've hiked the Manterio Trail. It's a wet place, and it's a place that you can get stuck in very quick and easy. It's not an easy place to walk through, but rather it's a place where you want to get through as quick as possible. You see the dry land on the other side, I just got to get through this area. And you just want to go as fast as you can and move on. My wife told me I'm allowed to tell this story. It's a story about her. So she was hiking and was going through a bog. And she slipped on a log and fell straight on her back. The weight of her backpack pulled her back. And she laid there, probably flailing her arms and kicking her legs in the air like this, because that's what she does when she's scared. 
And she needed the other hikers to come and pull her up, come and lift her up out of the bog, out of the miry bog, as she says it. David is longing for God to come and lift him up, bring him out of his situation, remove everything that is going on, and put him somewhere else. And God does show up. He is the rescuer, and he is our great rescuer. And where are you stuck that you can't seem to get out? Where is it that you need God to come and rescue you? After God lifts and heard David, he places David. Verse 2 goes on to say, And set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So God hears us, God lifts us, and God places us. He puts David on a rock, and he lifts him from the pit and the bog to a place that is hard, quite the opposite of a bog. And David is then, once again, able to move forward. So after I cried out to God and longed to know where he was and why he hadn't answered me, I felt God lift me up. I felt God place me on a rock. And I've come to know him more, I've come to understand and know him more secure. I've learned his gospel more. I've learned how to see him working in my life. And I've and each week as I come to Urban Grace and I'm reminded each week of the gospel and how it affects everything and then I have to go and tell my city group this is how the gospel affects where you're at. I find that God's moving me each week to a more secure place in Him. Then, after God hears and God lifts and God places, God gives. In verse 3, He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. God hears, God lifts, God places, and now God gives David a new song to sing, a song of praise. David is hoping that many will see and fear and trust the Lord because of what he does. Many people see the psalmist fall, but they also see the evidence of God's goodness towards him. They see that God has given grace to his people and awe fills their mind. And they are drawn to the Lord and want to trust him. God hears, God lifts, God places, and God gives. These four verses show us the gospel. God heard the cry of his people. Jesus comes down and lifts his people up out of the pit of death. He places them on a rock himself, and Jesus gives up his life for us. We've seen what God has done, and now we're going to see who God is. Who is God? He is the God of the past, the present, and the future. Verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wonders, deeds, and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So we read first that God has done wondrous deeds, past. He is doing wondrous deeds, present. He heard David when David cried. He was there in the present moment with David. And after reading this, I needed to take some time to just remember that God has done things for me. He is doing things. 
and he will be there in the future. And then we read in verse 5, right in the middle, that God has thoughts towards us. This is, it was a difficult concept as I read this this week, that God would have thoughts towards me. What does it mean that God has thoughts towards me? It means that he cares about me, he thinks about me, and he's involved in my life. In the past, I would have thought that God's thoughts towards me would be something more like this, that he's out to get me, and he doesn't care what happens. And I've had these thoughts when I was much younger, and I did not fully understand who God is, that he's a God that is loving and concerned about his people. And I was reminded of two things, that God does have thoughts for me, and that his thoughts towards me are loving and good. And we also have a God who is concerned about the future. Who is God? He is a God that none can compare to. The middle of verse 5 says, none can compare with you. We live in a world that's wrapped up in comparing. We compare everything. We compare our lives. We compare our talents, our skills, our abilities. We want to be somebody else all the time. We look at Facebook and it's, oh, they went to that restaurant. I'm going to go to that restaurant and order what they ordered. We compare everything we do. But God, he's in a class all of his own. None can compare with God. The idols that we set up against God, if they're money, fame, power, sex, none of them can care to who God is. In the end, they won't compare. The psalmist goes on to proclaim and tell of the wondrous deeds that God has done. But God has done so much that the psalmist can't proclaim it all. He says at the end of verse 5, Yet they are more than can be told. He is overwhelmed with God's wondrous deeds. He wants to proclaim them to everyone that can hear him. So what would it look like in our own lives if we took the time to proclaim all the wondrous deeds that God has done? Would we have a list that is so long that we might not be able to get it in? Maybe this week you need to take some time to write down every time that God has done something in your life. Then you can tell them. No, you can proclaim them to your family and your friends and your city group this week. I wish I would take more time to write down everything that God has done for me over the years. When we go to scripture, we, we read all the time that this is what God did. Remember Israel, this is what God did. Remember he brought you out of slavery and this is what he did. The idea of remembering what God did in our lives is a big thing. So we can proclaim it to our family and our friends in the future. The psalmist not only proclaims the deeds, the wondrous deeds of God, he told the glad news of deliverance. Who is God? He is the God of deliverance. Verse 9 says, I've told the glad news of deliverance in the congregation. David is basically telling us here that he has preached the good news to the people, that he told the gospel to whoever would gather around him. People that needed to hear it would come around David and want to be reminded of what God has done and who God is. And this is foreshadowing what would happen when Jesus comes, that the crowds would gather around Jesus to hear of who God was. David sees God as the one who brings about the deliverance for the people of Israel, and that is glad news that needs to be told. 
He goes on to say, Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know. The psalmist wants us to know that his lips had to open. He had to speak, and he had to tell the glad news of deliverance. The psalmist goes on in verse 10 to explain more about who God is. He says, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have, not, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love, your faithfulness from the great congregation. Jesus used these verses this week to remind me that I need to open my mouth and speak about what he has done and who he is. And I need to proclaim his faithfulness in my life and remind people of the salvation that he gives. Who is God? He is faithful. What does it mean that God is faithful? Faithfulness is defined this way. True to one's word, promise, vows. God is true to his word and we can trust him at it. Suppose a person was to say this to you. Sometime in the future, I will give you $50,000. You will receive the money that I've set aside for you. Although you become impatient, wanting the money because you want to go spend it, you already planned out what you're going to do with the money that he's going to give you. You're longing for it to show up, and then you get it, and you know what you've done with it. You've spent it. You've bought what you wanted. You've done what you did with it. But what if the same man said something like this? If everything works out, I might give you money that I've set aside. If, as long as I don't go bankrupt, or I change my mind, or I die. Right? Of course, the first situation is more assuring, right? That you will get it. It is going to happen. And this is what God is like. He's true to his word. He dates everything. And within his sovereign will, it will come about. He has perfect knowledge of what is best for us. And he never changes his mind. He never forgets. And he never dies. He is faithful and we can trust him. Who is God? He is the God of salvation. God had the plan of salvation before the world was created. David knew that a savior would come. David was trusting God to fulfill a promise he had made a long time ago that someone would come and save the people. David says, your salvation. What is God's salvation? It is deliverance from sin and its consequences brought about by faith in Christ. Have you experienced the salvation of God in your life? I came to experience salvation when I realized that I needed a savior and I couldn't save myself. I needed to turn to Jesus as the only savior and I could trust him because of what he has done and not who I am. And because of what he has done, I'm able to enter into the family of God and be called the son of God. Who is God? He is the God of steadfast love. What does it mean that God has steadfast love? He is sure, dependable, reliable, and unwavering. His love doesn't change. God's love is unwavering. He's not up in heaven playing a game that my friends used to play with a flower. And you pull the petals. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And you get to the end. And you could say, he loves me or he loves me not. God's love is not like that. 
It is steadfast. In a world where we fall in and out of love, as I was reminded on Friday night as I left the theater and heard Alicia Keys playing, people keep falling in and out of love. Right? God's love is steadfast. It is unwavering. It does not change. It stays the same. He is dependable. Who is God? He is the God of mercy. Verse 11 says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. David says your faithfulness three times in this passage and your steadfast love twice. David wants us to remember that God is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is the God of mercy. What does mercy mean? Mercy can be defined as one dictionary puts it. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Sometimes in my life, I just need mercy. When I sin, I need to be reminded that God is a God of mercy and that he will show forgiveness and he will show his love to me and he won't harm me. Who is God? He is the, he is the deliverer. Verses 12 to 13 say, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I can't see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And verse 17 says, You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. We see that David is looking not for just forgiveness of his iniquities, but he wants God to show up and deliver him from them. The last few weeks I've been longing for God to show up and deliver me from certain situations. And I've called out to God and just said, deliver me, help me. And I know that he's come and he's answered because situations have changed, things have been answered. And some people today need Jesus not only to forgive your iniquities, but deliver you from them. He is the only one who can deliver you. Who is God? He is great. Verse 16 says, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation continually say, Great is the Lord. As we grow in our knowledge of who Christ is and follow him, and we grow in his grace, our hearts will delight in his salvation which he purchased and freely gives. And we will be able to say, great is the Lord. When I read this this week, this was one area where I was like, I just need to work on this. I need to be able to proclaim and say that God is great. I need to be reminded that he is great and I want my love for him to grow and be able to say that. The great is the Lord. Who is God? He is the God of the past, the present, and the future. None can compare with him. He is the God that he is the God that is faithful. He is the God of salvation. He is the God of steadfast love. He is the God of mercy. He is the deliverer. He is great. Do you have a place where you can proclaim and tell people of who God is? Here at Urban Grace, this happens each week in city groups and on Sunday mornings. My city group meets on Tuesdays in the Glenbrook area. So if you live near Glenbrook and you would like to join a city group, you can join my group and you will get to hear of who God is, what he does, and why we need the gospel. 
When we gather as a group, we proclaim, we tell, and we speak about who God is. And on Sunday mornings, the men that get up and preach, they remind us of God's faithfulness, of God's salvation, of God's steadfast love, of God's mercy, and they remind us that God is great. So we've seen what God does and who God is. And now we're going to see how this psalm shows us Jesus. In verse 6, It says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. We need to spend some time just to figure out some of these words here. We need to figure out what is a sacrifice, what is offering, and what is burnt offering. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice was an innocent and perfect animal that gave up its life so that a person could be forgiven. An offering was different than a sacrifice. It didn't involve an animal and no blood was shed. It was probably a grain that they would offer up to God. What is a burnt offering? It was a sacrifice that involved the whole animal apart from its blood and the skin and the animal would be consumed on the altar. What is a sin offering? The sin offering was the primary blood atonement offering in the, in the sanctuary system of offerings through which worshipers could receive forgiveness for their sins and deal with the degree to which they might have contaminated the tabernacle. The sacrifices made by the priests in the Old Testament were not a complete thing. They pointed to the gospel fulfillment, as one writer puts it. Every sacrifice on the altar points to Jesus on the cross. The blood that flowed foreshadowed the blood that would be the all-cleansing blood that flowed when Jesus hung on the cross. The sacrifices were only a shadow, and there was no real atonement in them. Jesus alone is the one who brings full atonement. But for this to happen, Christ had to come, and he needed to sacrifice his life. Verse 7 says, then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This section of the Psalms is later quoted in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, starting in verse 5, when it says, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The psalmist tells us that God does not delight in sacrifice and offering. He is looking for something more. He was looking for someone who would have delight to do his will and would would have his law written within his heart. The psalmist is pointing us to Jesus, the one who would come down to earth, God in the flesh, the one who lived the perfect life we should have lived, the one who delighted to do the will of the Father, even to the point of going to the cross and dying for our sins in our place. The one who went down to the grave, who God lifted up from the grave. And because of this, we can sing a new song. This psalm is all about Jesus. We've seen what God does, who God is, and how it points us to Jesus. We see that God hears us when we cry. God lifts us, God places us, and God gives. Who is God? He is the God of the past, the present, and the future. None can compare with him. He is a God that is faithful. He is the God of salvation. He is the God of steadfast love. He is the God of mercy. He is the deliverer, and he is great. We see that Jesus was the real sacrifice who delighted to do the will of God. In closing, this week some of us need to wait on God. Some of us need to cry out to him. Some of us need to remember that he has lifted us and placed us. And some of us need to sing a song of praise for what he has done. Some of us need to put our trust in him. And some of us need to remember who he is. And some of us need to join a city group so we can proclaim what God has done. And some of us need to write down the wondrous deeds Christ has done. my brother. I'll call the band up now. You can go ahead and sit down, Matt. This is a special time. Thanks for bringing the word, Matt. Just good to even hear that list and to be reminded that it's really important as someone who believes in Jesus to simply remember what he has done. So for a lot of us, this isn't new information, but it's information we need to hear weekly, daily, hourly. And each week we have something that reminds us of ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. As Matt talked about, is, the, is all these sacrifices that were happening for centuries for those who were following God were, were just, in some ways, they were a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would give we use the word gospel and, and, and the cross this morning. And these are really, the gospel is a shorthand form of good news. And that good news is about Jesus, that he actually was the ultimate sacrifice. And these symbols here this morning, the cup and the bread, symbolize for us two very important things as people who believe in Jesus. They first of all symbolize that God did actually come that he, he became flesh, that God came down from his cozy place in heaven on mission to us. 
and inhabited a, a physical human body in order that he might be able to relate to us in a very unique way. But he didn't just come in the flesh and live as a good example for us. He actually paid a price. Instead of saying, I will show you how to do the greatest sacrifice. I will show you a great sacrificial system. He didn't do that. He actually inhabited the sacrifice itself and became the sacrifice. And that's why we often refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Because a sacrifice was always an innocent person or an innocent animal that, would, that, that didn't do anything wrong, but would pay the full price for someone who did something wrong. So instead of you having to pay the price, that animal would have to pay the price. Seems like a cruel way of doing things now. And Jesus says, I know it's a cruel way of doing things, but I want you to understand what I am going to do for you. That I will ultimately take on the cruelest form of punishment so that you never have to. And I will become the sacrifice. I don't just show you a sacrifice. I won't purify your sacrifice. I won't make your sacrifices great. I will be the sacrifice. And that's symbolized in the blood. And so that's why this is so important to us. And so this morning we encourage you, if you don't really believe that yet, if you don't think that's true, then we would say this actually isn't a meal for you. Not because we don't want you to participate in, in it, but because by participating in it, what you are doing is you are saying, I believe this to be true and I am resting my life on this. And so if that isn't true for you this morning, we ask you to just withhold you participating in it this morning. But I would also ask this question. If you can't participate in it this morning, I would say, what's holding you back? Why don't you believe that? Why don't you reach out to God this morning and trust in Jesus to be your sacrifice? Why don't you quit trying to sacrifice for God on your own, give up your old system that doesn't really work anyways, that has led you here even this morning and trust in Jesus who became your sacrifice? And so let's, let me pray and then let's spend some time singing and responding. Jesus, We thank, we thank you that ultimately you have drawn us up out of the miry bog, which many of us feel that we are in this morning. That you did something that we could not do ourselves. And just like Amanda was laying flat on her back and needed help, so do we. We need your help. And you have done that. And so, Jesus, we honor you this morning by participating in the symbols that you have given to us. And we reach out to you, we cry out to you, we make a list of all the things that you've done for us this morning. And we thank you for your forgiveness. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.